Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Well, hey, folks, I spent the day in a Utah court listening to the state's case against Adventures with Purpose YouTuber Jared Lysick. Stay tuned for my impressions of what was revealed and why I think this case has major problems. Well, hey, folks, and welcome to Profiling Evil. Thanks so much for supporting our efforts. Now, as many of you have noted, I've remained really quiet since news broke last year about the allegations of serious sexual abuse crimes levied against YouTuber Jared Lysick. He's accused of sexually assaulting his extended family member. Well, like you, I don't know what's true, and I don't know what isn't true, but either way... If convicted for this crime, a crime that occurred when Lysik was a juvenile, this guy will be facing penalties in an adult court. That's right, folks. The charge Lysik faces is a first-degree felony. Now, in Utah's adult court system, that could result in a sentence of 25 years to life. Now, my video today isn't about whether the victim in the case is telling the truth or whether she isn't. It's not even about Jared's claim that it never happened, something that I'm assuming only evidenced by his not guilty plea. Now, my video today is about the facts that unfolded in the courtroom yesterday, and I want you to know I'm standing behind my comments as facts because I witnessed it firsthand. In fact, <laughs> I was the only person in that courtroom that wasn't a part of the preliminary hearing that was held. I mean, that's right, folks. There was nobody in there. And, and that was just remarkable to me, given all of the mainstream and social media coverage that this case has received. The courtroom was empty, except for a guy from Profiling Evil sitting on the front row. Now, that takes into account accepting the fact that the Judge Mandy Larson was there, the bailiff, the court clerk, the prosecutor, one witness— and then Jared Lysick and his defense team. The gallery was empty. The proceeding wasn't broadcast, and by Utah rules, I was prevented from recording or photographing any part of the hearing, including the courtroom, even when it was empty. And I want you to know, I even went back and I asked the bailiffs to see if the court would allow me to take a photograph. They said no. Well, as I get started with my impressions from yesterday's hearing, I want to reiterate that my comments have nothing to do with the victim's allegations of abuse. This woman deserves the right to have her experience investigated, validated, and now heard in a courtroom. You know, my career was spent in the defense of victims, so I don't want any of you to assume that I'm taking one side or another, or I'm discounting what the victim has said. I hope that you'll remember this as I continue, because my entire career was spent this way. You know, I've championed victims and their rights for 40-plus years, but I'm also a defender of the criminal justice system that I love. Now, that said, I'm also really comfortable in calling out when I see defects, or as I often say, warts on the hog. And these are based on my opinions only. They're based on a career of investigating criminal cases. They're based on my own experiences that I gained while interviewing and interrogating hundreds of victims, witnesses, and offenders, including serial predators. Now, my opinions are based on my experience alone, and they're based on experience working for decades in a prosecutor's office and from my experience in testifying in courtrooms. 
my opinions are are based on more than 40 years of professional experience in the criminal justice environment. And I think it's really important to just remind you of that because I'm not coming from this with the idea of, hey, I just like true crime and want to talk about it. I have some strong opinions, but they're based on four plus decades of experience. Now, I come at these opinions from a cop's perspective. And and frankly, from a criminal behavior perspective, as a person with life experiences reaching 65 plus years, my graduate work in college is in criminal behavior. I'm not a prosecutor, and I don't profess to be an expert in the law. But that said, I do ask a lot of questions. I have had a lot of tutoring in the courtroom and in prosecutors' offices, and I've read the statutes and the rulings that have been handed down in cases, and and in this case in particular. And so with that disclaimer in place, I'm ready to jump into this case, and I hope that you are as well. And I hope that you're going to take time while we're talking to enter your comments in the chat window and, and after this video posts down below. And again, folks, this isn't about victim shaming, victim blaming, or even defendant blaming. It's about my impressions of the evidence that has come out thus far. So let's start with just a quick recap of what this case is about. Back in 2022, a police investigator in San Pete County. Now, this is a rural central Utah area. In fact, I'm showing some video of me driving through that area on my way to court uh, yesterday as I went out there to watch this thing. He received an email from a woman who reported that she had been sexually assaulted approximately in 1990 by an extended family member. The victim identified her attacker as YouTuber from Adventures with Purpose, Jared Lysick. Now, many of you know Jared's a friend of mine, and I'm not pulling any punches on what's going on here. I am an absolute believer in justice. Now, in her allegation... The victim states that when she was about 9 or 10 years old, and and Jared was around 16 or 17 years old, that these assaults occurred in San Pete County, specifically in a home in a little place called Ephraim, Utah. And I'll tell you what, if you ever get a chance, drive through this area of Utah. It is just magical to go through these little towns. And sadly, with that magic, there sometimes are some secrets. But... She was first uh, alleging that she was abused in this home in Ephraim, and then later in a home in Manti, Utah. And that's where the court trial's being held. Now, her email at that stage was suggestive that she had carried this burden and memory for about 30 years, but she was now ready to talk about it. Well, by November of 2022, San Pete County prosecutors filed rape of a child charges against Lysick, citing the newly changed Utah law that removed all statutes of limitation on crimes like this. That's right. What used to be a clock that said you can't go after someone anymore was removed and gave people the chance to go back in time on these kinds of cases. Now, one of the charges was eventually dropped and Lysick currently faces one count. Now, the internet and many, many news channels carried the story of Lysick's arrest, and a lot of creators out there explored the charges and theorized based on the limited amount of information that was released. Part of that information that everybody's making wild accusations about that may end up being true, by the way, all of those things come from an email exchange that the victim and the defendant had surrounding memories of abuse in their childhood. Now, with the release of that email exchange, there have been a lot of assumptions made. And some of those assumptions, again, I'm going to say, might in the end prove correct. But man, I don't know. In fact, if you've noticed, Profiling Evil has refrained from discussing the case waiting for official word to come from the criminal justice system. And there's no question, I have a personal relationship with Jared. We worked on a number of missing person cases together. I talked about him on this channel. I've had Jared on this channel. I've been on his channel ad nauseum. We've worked a number of missing person cases together. In fact, I provided support in three missing person cases where Adventures with Purpose found the missing people. 
pulling them from their watery graves. Now, those people had been written off by law enforcement. I hate to say it, but it's bluntly the truth. Law enforcement said they couldn't be found. One had been gone for five years, another for 16, and another from, for 19 years before we joined forces and found them. I'm really proud of that work, and like many of you, I was devastated when the charges were filed against uh, Jared. And for a year, I've waited for some kind of an authoritative source to announce what the charges truly are based on and what the case of the state of Utah versus Jared Lysick is all about. Well, yesterday was the preliminary hearing, and I got up early in the morning and made the three-hour drive in order to witness the allegations firsthand. And I've got to admit, I was really apprehensive as I climbed into my pickup truck. In fact, I stopped as I was exiting the cul-de-sac where I live, and I recorded some of my thoughts, something I'd like to share with you as we get going on this thing. It was something that I talked about to myself as I worked my way through uh, this experience. Let's watch that. Well, good morning, folks. It's Mike from Profiling Evil, and it's the early morning hours of December 29th. I'm just leaving my home to head down to Manti, Utah, to watch the preliminary hearing for Jared Lysick. This is gonna give me an opportunity to answer some questions that I've had from the beginning. Uh, it's gonna give me a chance to hear from the prosecution and hear what the facts of the case are, to hear from the victim in this case who has an absolute right to have her case heard, and to hear some of Jared's defense and uh, what makes this case maybe a little different. I think it's gonna be really interesting to hear about a couple of things in particular that I'm gonna be watching for in this trial. Number one, <clears throat> again, I wanna restate that I believe 100% that this victim deserves her day in court and deserves to have this case heard and deserves justice for the things that happened in her life. Uh, in uh, Jared's defense, he has the right to tell his story, to, to remind the court of the things that I've read online uh, that suggests that he was a juvenile at the same time. And I find this interesting because if he were a juvenile at the time that the assaults occurred, if all of this is true, and I don't know, and that's what I'm hoping to find out today, if he was a juvenile, this would have been handled in a much different venue than this adult public court that we're watching this thing in today. And I am really troubled by Utah law that allows <clears throat> these cases to be heard in a different venue than the time period when they happened. <clears throat> if this would have, if an arrest would have occurred at the time of the assault, this would have been heard in the juvenile court. It would have been satisfied by juvenile court law and it never would have seen the light of day uh, as far as the media or the public display that's going on. And, and that's troubling to me, although I certainly understand he's now an adult and uh, faces those kinds of things in the adult court. The other thing that's gonna be interesting is if, uh, if this should be something that labels him as a sex offender, uh, when if it had happened as a juvenile, he never would have been on the sex offender registry unless he was registered as an adult. So there's a couple of legal issues that I'm interested in. But again, make no mistake about this. I believe in justice, and I believe that this victim deserves her day in court and deserves the opportunity to tell her story and that Jared has the right to defend his. And it's not on YouTube, and it's not in the public light. We've seen a lot of people really jump on the bandwagon on this one, and uh, rightly so, because he's a public figure. Um, so, Well, when I arrived at the courthouse in Manti, Utah, I went through security and alarms started ringing as my bag of camera supplies, iPad, and recording equipment was setting off all the alarms. The police officer who scanned the material looked at me and I looked at him and we burst into smiles, recognizing each other from our days in the police academy some 40 years earlier. Now, this officer's name is Brad Bradley, and he's pictured here at that security post. And, and I was really rushing to get into the courtroom, but Brad and I quickly agreed to meet for lunch after the hearing. And I'm going to post a short video of our lunch conversation 
as we chatted a little bit about the good old days. I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. One is to kind of be a little comic relief in the middle of this pretty heavy video. And number two, just to share uh, the old days with one with you as I talk with one of my old buddies. Well, you know what? I was really surprised when I walked in the courtroom and discovered that I was the only person sitting in the courtroom outside of those who were attached to the case, the attorneys and the judge. Now, Jared and I just chatted for a moment, and the court was called into session as Judge Mandy Larson came in and took the bench. The preliminary hearing started just a little bit after 9 a.m. Now, neither the prosecution or the defense offered any opening statement. And I was really disappointed to learn that the only witness that the state would be putting on was the investigator in the case. I had really hoped that the victim would testify so that I could make my own assessment of what her thoughts, feelings, and emotions were projecting. Well, likewise, I really hoped that Jared might say something, but he wisely followed the counsel of his attorneys, who recommended that he remain quiet. And that placed all the burden upon the prosecution. So let's chat a little bit about this hearing process. You know, you know, while on the stand, the prosecutor led this investigator through an outline of his 13-year policing career, highlighting the fact that this investigator has spent the last five years assigned to doing investigations. Now keep in mind, this area is a really small jurisdiction. I mean, the county alone only has 29,000 people living in it. And the city, where the courthouse is, only has 3,500 residents. And, and, I'm, and by telling you this, I'm not suggesting that the officer lacks experience, but a case like this is pretty big news in San Pete County. And that's going to play into whether they can find a jury and, frankly, um, what happens with this case moving forward or whether it's moved. Now, the detective testified that he had had little face-to-face contact with either the victim or Lysick. In fact, he indicated that he'd only had one or two discussions with Lysick. And I don't even know that those happened. I think one in email and one on a cell phone call, if I remember right. He said that he received the allegation of the assault from the victim through an email. And that happened after the victim had already reported the crime in Las Vegas to the police department there. When the defense attorneys got up to cross-examine the investigator, it was revealed that the victim initially reported this case in Las Vegas. And I'm assuming indicated that it happened there, but I don't know that for sure. And that's going to become important, but it is important to know that at one time, Jared lived in Las Vegas as a child or as a a juvenile, but Las Vegas police interviewed the woman and determined that the case was outside of the Nevada statute of limitations. Now, my understanding from the detective's testimony, and again, this is firsthand, I'm listening and he's about uh, 25 feet away from me. The testimony of the detective was that he believed Las Vegas police encouraged the victim to report the crime in Utah because Utah now had this new law that removed all statute of limitations on the most serious of child sexual crimes. And it had to be the most serious in order to fit this category. The detective then requested Las Vegas investigators to go back and re-interview, but record the victim's statement and send it to him. Now, this courtesy interview was conducted by the Las Vegas Metro Police Department, and after the detective in Utah reviewed it, he recontacted the victim and asked the victim for a statement about what happened in in the assault, and that is what was entered into evidence in court yesterday. The victim's statement was not read in court, but the detective did testify about what was included in the victim's statement, and that included that a rape had occurred when they were in a home in San Pete County, sometime between the years of 1990 and 1992. Now, some testimony later in the day said 93, but that would have placed the victim at an age of around 9 to 11 years old, 
and lysic in an age of 15 to 17 years old. And this is really important. Now, that's a big age difference when you're that small, but this is really important because under Utah law, Lysik would have been a juvenile and should have been handled in the juvenile court system. And this brings up the first big concern that I have in this case. Uh, I don't know if this assault occurred or not, folks, and and frankly, this is not my thing to decide. But I find it incredibly interesting that if this had come to light when it occurred, if it occurred, Lysik would have been charged as a juvenile, and he would have been adjudicated in a juvenile court setting. And the record, when he turned 18, would have never been exposed publicly. Even when it was going on, it wouldn't have been exposed public. The record would have been sealed, and we would have never known about this thing. You know, there's a there's a solid reason why the courts do this. And so I guess this is the first thing that I'd like you all to consider and ask yourself. Number one is, would you like to be judged today on decisions that you made when you were a teenager? I, for one, would certainly not want to be. But but before you get upset about my question or the fact that it might appear that I'm uh, leaning in Jared's defense, remember, I'm not minimizing at all what may or may not have happened. I'm not minimizing at all what memories this victim has. Those are for people a lot smarter than me to sort out. I'm only asking the question of whether or not Utah law, this law that eliminated the statute of limitations, makes sense. And more importantly, if crimes are committed when you're in your youth, should those crimes be tried in public and in an adult court setting? I really have a a struggle with this one. So I want to know what your thoughts are on this one. And I hope as you put your comments uh, in the chat box and later down below that you're really kind with one another as you express your feelings. And most importantly, that you're really kind as you respond to comments that other people make. Now, here's another reason why I'm really concerned with this case. And it's based on that new law in Utah. You see... Recently, the United States, Utah, and Supreme Court ruled against this kind of revelation in what I consider to be a really companion-type case to the one we're discussing, a case where a woman is accusing a person of sexually assaulting her many years earlier. Now, in the case that was uh, held in this regard, you can look it up, it's called Mitchell versus Roberts, the woman sued civilly the defendant, and eventually the court case made its way on up the ladder to the Supreme Court. Again, go look it up. It's called Mitchell and Ro- Mitchell versus Roberts. I'm showing the pages from it on the screen, but it's really difficult to read here. So look up the case. But here are the facts of that civil case. And I want you to weigh in below on whether you think it has any application in this case and if it's going to become an issue in this case. Because again, they're both companion cases from Utah. They both came about because of the Utah legislature changing the law, which allowed the uh, the uh, statute of limitations to be expired by uh, going in and saying something happened. Now, the victim in this particular case claimed that the defendant sexually assaulted her in 1981. The victim... Uh, agreed that the statute of limitations had run on this case, but she claimed her case was revived, revived when the new legislature enacted that Utah code, which made it possible for certain civil claims against perpetrators of sexual abuse to be asserted, even if, quote, time barred as of July 1, 2016, close quote, and if they are, quote, brought within 35 years of the victim's 18th birthday or within three years of the effective date of the law, the victim asserted that the law made her claim possible. And that's what made it possible for her to sue, to originally win, but now have this case in front of the Supreme Court. Well, after hearing the case, the court justices determined that the Utah Legislative Authority uh, and their um, attempt to revive time-barred claims, or in other words, crimes that have already run the statute of limitations, um, that the, the legislature 
was prohibited from retroactively reviving those claims in a manner that deprived a defendant of a vested statute of limitations. In other words, they said, you can't do that. You can't go back. And, and I wonder if eventually this is going to kind of shake out and say, if the, if the statute stays in place, that going forward, you can do those things. Now, the court went on to say the principle is well-rooted in our precedent. A point meriting respect is a matter of stare decisis. The court continued by stating that they didn't make their decision lightly. But the bottom line was, it was reversed and thrown out. So this leaves another glaring question in my mind. If this Utah law that revives statutes of limitation is thrown out in this case, is it possible that it's going to get thrown out in this criminal case? Is it really constitutional? And is it really fair? Again, think about it. If a civil case with the same kind of elements gets overturned by the Supreme Court, is this case going to face the same fate if it's challenged in a higher court? Now, I don't blame the prosecutors and others. I certainly understand the precarious predicament that that prosecutor was placed in when faced with an injured and traumatized victim. But I find myself wondering if this public spectacle that we're seeing is truly the place to sort this kind of thing out. Now, let's return back to the trial and what I continued to learn there. Now, it's Mike from Profiling Evil, and we've come up with a really cool way for you to ask us questions. In fact, we're going to call it, Hey Mike, I've got a question. And all I'm going to ask you to do is go to your mobile device and record your question. I'm going to then use that recording in one of my videos or during a live, like on choir practice, to have you ask the question, appear on Profiling Evil, and then I'll try to answer that question. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to give you all a chance to be a little more involved in profiling evil. Now listen, please keep your question to about a minute or less so that we can get through these in a timely manner. And thanks so much for your support of profiling evil. I'm looking forward to how this comes out, and I hope it's as successful as it appears. Now all you're going to need to do once you create that video is go to the link that I'm going to show you here in a moment or the QR code that I'm going to provide and upload your video to that location. You can do it right from your photos file, so it should be really easy. And I'm going to walk through the steps to doing that for you here. So here's all you got to do, folks. When you pull out your phone, do the recording, make that recording of yourself. And then once you've completed that recording, then go in and capture the QR code, or you can enter it in if you prefer to do it that way. I'm going to just capture it here on my screen, as you can see. Once you open up that QR code, it's going to give a, a quick uh, release form. I need that in order to use your image and then upload uh, your video into the portal. It says, by uploading this video, I do hereby consent to the use by Profiling Evil LLC of my image, video, voice, or all three of them in any of Profiling Evil's social media channels, including YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and audio podcasts. In addition, I waive any rights to inspect or approve the finished video recording. Then all you gotta do is simply hit select files, go to your video folder as I've had to do here, and click on your image and say add. From there, it's gonna upload your image. It's gonna bring it in to the Profiling Evil uh, file system, and I'll be able to review it and post it up and uh, respond to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I hope that you enjoy taking advantage of it. Now, the last thing you're going to have to do is put your name, I'm going to put mine here, and your email, and this is all needed in order to send this and then make it all uh, right. So let's... And then once you hit send, it's going to go through the upload process. You'll be able to watch that and monitor. Make sure you don't turn your browser off, but that you uh, continue to let that run until it's complete. Depending on the size of the video, it might take a minute or two to uh, upload that. Again, try to keep your comments to a minute, two minutes maximum, just so that 
we can fill the number of questions and get them out there. Now, this isn't going to take away from the chance you have to get online with us during choir practice or some other live and uh, ask questions and maybe even spend a little time on Profiling Evil with us. But it will be a fun way for us to answer some questions and give you a chance to be on the, the screen with us in Profiling Evil. So, Thanks so much, and we'll see you soon at the next crime scene. Now, as defense attorneys were questioning the detective regarding the statements that he received from other people interviewed in the case, the detective responded that everything that other people reported was based on things they had been told by the victim or things uttered by Lysick. Not one witness witnessed the events, according to the detective. That came out on trial yesterday. No witnesses, only the, the victim's statement. The detective also admitted that Lysick himself didn't confess to the crime of rape of a child. But he did say that his email included what he termed to be admissions that molestations had occurred in the family. Now, we're going to explore that email based on what I've gotten from the internet in a, just a few moments. The actual document, though, wasn't released in court yesterday. So I don't know if the copy I'm using is truly an unedited copy or not. Um, so I'm going to have to wait until the judge decides whether this document is 100% unedited. And I want to, before talking about that, just put that caveat in place. Now, during cross-examination, the detective also admitted that the victim couldn't remember when the crime actually happened and, and was guessing at the years. Well, I don't remember things when I was nine or 10 exactly when they happened. Um, although, some people suggest that something traumatic, you would remember everything about it. The clothes you're wearing, the day, whether the sun was up. I, I don't know, and I'm not going to judge that. But the detective said that he tried to narrow the years down by researching when that house was actually there because it had eventually been torn down. He also went and looked at public school records on the victim to determine when she was living there. And he places the assault somewhere between 1990 and 1993. Again, putting both the victim and the defendant as juveniles. When questioned by the defense, the detective also indicated that he had concerns about the statute of limitations and that he was, uh, that he left that in the hands of the prosecutor who apparently also communicated with witnesses in the case and they were reaching out asking for additional information. The defense tried to get the court to share that information in court, but the judge said no, no and, and cited rule 1102 which basically says that reliable hearsay is admissible in preliminary hearing examinations. But when the detective was asked why statements from victims that were favorable to Lysak's defense were admitted from the filing, the investigator admitted that it just simply boiled down to the victim's statement with no other evidence outside the assumption that he made by Lysak's remarks in the email conversation. So when the defense pressed the investigator about the fact that the victim had changed the dates and her ages after questions came up about the statute of limitation, the detective, as he started the answer, was stopped by the judge, who then called the attorneys to the bench for a private conversation. That line of questioning was stopped, dead cold. I don't know what was said at the bench, but the defense didn't ask the question of the detective again. So the defense did, though, go on and ask the detective if he reviewed the letters that Lysak's witnesses had provided to prosecution that disputed the timelines and the evidence. The detective responded that the prosecution had never shared those with him and that he'd never seen them. The judge then stepped in again and reminded everyone that she has one job today, and that job in a preliminary hearing is to determine whether there's enough evidence to find probable cause and move the case to a trial. She reiterated at that moment it's her job to lean in the state's favor 
when it comes to evidence and questions. That's something I really didn't realize after so many years in the business. Well, the prosecutor then presented a statement that came from the victim's mother, and she said that Lysak apologized to her for things that had happened between her daughter and all the other cousins. The statement didn't suggest that Lysak confessed to doing anything, and the word rape never came up by any of the witness statements until the question of the statute of limitations came up. And then, according to the defense, the word rape came into play. Now, importantly, the detective admitted on the stand that Lysak has never admitted to raping the victim, and he never told anyone else about that, never mentioned it to any other witness. The detective testified to this. The state then said they had no further case witness evidence or other things to present. Now, I don't know if this means that the state doesn't have any other evidence, or if they felt like they'd met their burden, the the burden required to get this case bound over for trial, and just said that's all we're going to share, which is a strategy of the prosecution. But I think one of the most important moments of testimony came when the detective, under cross-examination, admitted that the victim's testimony changed from the point of the recording in Las Vegas with the Metropolitan Police Department and the time when she wrote her statement. So during that time when she learned that something was outside the statute of limitations and the time that she came in and talked with police through her written statement, she changed that statement. How she changed it, I don't know, because it wasn't released in the court. The defense reminded the court that they advised Lysak not to testify. So the defense attorney got up and said, I've already told my client not to testify But he said, I want him to answer. And the judge asked, are you going to testify? And Jared confirmed that he was not going to be testifying in the preliminary hearing. And with that, the remaining time was set for closing arguments and the judge's decision. Well, in their closing statement, which was incredibly short, the prosecution stated that all the evidence in this case is based on the victim's statement to the detective. They reminded the court that in that statement, she indicated that she was raped by Lysak while she was under the age of 14. They included evidence from a statement from the victim's mother who stated that her daughter told her that the assault occurred. But what they didn't reveal is the timeline of when that revelation was made. So my question I'm left with is, did that revelation come shortly after the assault? And if so, why didn't mom report it years ago? Or did that revelation come to her 30 years later when she made the allegations against Jared Lysak? The defense, they made no closing argument, and the judge quickly ruled that there was enough probable cause to bind Jared Lysak over for trial, charging him with rape of a child. The judge also ruled that the audio and written transcripts from yesterday's preliminary hearing would be sealed from public release. Nobody was going to get it outside of court officers. And at the defense's request, the judge allowed Lysak to waive his arraignment on the charge, and he entered a not guilty plea on the spot. The court and the court officers determined that they were going to need five days for a jury selection and for the trial. And to prepare for that, the judge set a pre-trial conference for February 21st at 1 p.m. via a WebEx. Now, this is going to be incredibly short, but it is going to be online. So we might see a few more YouTubers uh, broadcasting what happened there. And then I suspect the trial will get scheduled later into the year, perhaps even as late as the fall. Well, after the hearing ended, I was kind of scratching my head still. And I got out and I walked past the bailiff and reminded him we were meeting for lunch. And then I went out and walked the streets of Manti, Utah for a moment as I made my way over to the restaurant. As I looked at the really serene surroundings of that little community, I found myself wondering, and frankly then justifying, why on earth were these charges brought forth? And I don't want any of you to confuse my word justification or frustration. My frustration was that the crime was committed as a juvenile, 
and it's now being tried in an adult court in full view of the public. I'm really frustrated by that. I'm frustrated that I'm hearing about all of this ugliness, especially because it would have been discreetly handled in a juvenile court back when it occurred. I'm really frustrated that this victim has apparently spent a lifetime sorting through the memories of this or some type of trauma. I feel so badly for her, and I hope that she finds some healing through this process. I'm frustrated that Jared is possibly being wrongly accused in this public forum. And I'm really frustrated that the criminal justice system doesn't have a better way of equitably finding truth and establishing justice. Man, I, I, I am so frustrated when I recall the first time I spoke to Jared Lysick on the phone, the first time I met him. I, I was actually in my car. I had just completed taping a Dr. Phil episode and was driving. And as we got on the phone, we were discussing whether it made sense for us to work together on some of the missing person cases he was looking at. He wanted an investigator to provide a true investigative perspective. And I thought it was a great opportunity to have somebody that could follow some of the ideas that I had in regard to geography and other things to look for people. During that call, I interviewed Jared in my own special way. And during the call, he told me that he was raised in Manti, Utah. And we shared a lot of tales about that area. And, and I spent a lot of time down in Manti, especially during my days when I was investigating ritual crimes. There was a polygamous group down there that I visited often. Well, as Jared and I talked... He revealed that he'd spent much of his teenage years in foster care. And that foster care experience started happening at age 10. So this kid clearly had his own issues at the same time that these allegations are unfolding. And I found myself wondering if the allegations in Utah or Las Vegas are the right place where things happened, if they happened. Because I learned that during this process... Under a Utah-managed foster care program, Jared was also sent to Las Vegas to live in a foster home. That might explain why this victim initially went to Las Vegas police. I don't know. But finally, I found myself feeling a little bit frustrated on what I heard regarding the state's evidence yesterday. I found myself pretty dang frustrated on the fact that this case, at least at the preliminary hearing level, is boiling down to one person's testimony against another, re relying on what appears to be a single form of evidence, the victim statement. And that's really concerning to me. P personally, I was never comfortable taking a criminal case to a prosecutor when I relied on only one form of evidence. In my opinion, successful prosecutions involve multiple forms of evidence. And if you remember anything about our early training in the Profiling Evil Academy, you'll remember that I often talk about the five forms of evidence. Uh, quickly, those forms of evidence are eyewitness accounts, which in this case would be this witness, this victim saying, this happened to me. It would be physical evidence, forensic evidence, circumstantial evidence, and confessions. Now, I'd like to add that an additional form of evidence that I talk about a lot is this behavioral evidence that kind of encompasses a lot of those other areas. If, if yesterday's trial was an indication of the evidence that the state has, I'm really concerned. There's only one eyewitness victim in this case. We could add email correspondence, perhaps, between the victim and Jared, and if it's validated to be 100% unedited, it could possibly be construed as a, an admission, but it's not a confession. Now, folks, I'm not trying to create frustration, and I suspect some of you right now are pretty frustrated with my comments, but think about this. If the email correspondence is accurate, Lysak didn't confess to anything. 
Now, he does acknowledge that there were molestations occurring among family members, which, according to the document, included both the victim and Lysick and probably others. But remember, the detective in his testimony yesterday indicated that the only comments he had from Lysick came from the February 4th email where Lysick acknowledged the cousin's email and then he responded, quote, I am so very sorry for the things that we cannot change. It's unfortunate that, and he mentions two family names, experienced the kind of stuff, I'm adding the kind of stuff, that you, I, and many of the other cousins were brought into, close quote. In that conversation, Lysak went on to write that he, like the victim, was once a victim by multiple people inside and out of the family. Frankly, I don't know if this thing happened or not, but in these words, I don't hear Jared admitting to anything. His His words express sorrow and pain for what the victim has gone through, and he even acknowledges it, saying, quote, it's unfortunate when families like ours experience molestation, close quote. Now, there are a number of disturbing things in that piece of correspondence that, frankly, I don't know whether it's factual or not. The court did not reveal the document in the preliminary hearing. So I've got to wait until somebody with authority releases it, and they release it with a determination of whether it's true or not. But I'll tell you what, there are things that are disturbing in there. Now, I know that many influencers out there have really dug their heels in and called this a confession. I'm just not there yet. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I know Jared or I've worked with him in the past. I believe that uh, as we wait for all of these theories to be tested against the actual evidence that the true truth and fact will come out. You know, I probably say it too often, but keep in mind the quote by Sherlock Holmes regarding facts and theories. In fact, I'm going to just say it again. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has facts because insensibly, We spend all of our time twisting facts to meet our theories rather than allowing the facts to drive what our theory becomes. So with that, I'm only going to comment on what I personally witnessed in the courtroom. And I've got to restate, I witnessed only one form of evidence that was presented. In my opinion, it doesn't make for a strong case, but Lysak could very well get convicted on that testimony alone if it sways the jury. And that's why I wish I could have heard the victim in this case yesterday. You know, a single form of evidence as the sole vehicle toward criminal charges scares the wits out of me, quite frankly. And while this isn't a cult case, or to my knowledge, a case where the victim's memories were surfaced through therapy, it causes me to think back to investigating cult crimes in the early 1990s. Now, during that time nationally, more than 12,000 12, unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse were vetted over a 10-year period of time. My team alone in the Attorney General's office looked into more than 300 allegations of serious abuse, and that was just during a couple of years, and that included murder. Now, many of these allegations came out after psychotherapy sessions included what many experts labeled as false memories. False memory syndrome is caused by memories of a traumatic episode, usually in the childhood, and it surrounds sexual abuse. The victim in these kinds of situations strongly believes the event occurred, but it's completely false. These uh, pseudo-memories are often vivid and emotionally charged, according to the experts. And this makes for an incredibly complex criminal case, if it's involved. And I'm not trained to fully understand the dynamics of of these repressed memories, so you might want to look up the syndrome and learn more about it. Some of you may even have situations that you want to uh, share in regard to that. And I'm not suggesting the victim in this case is suffering from this type of syndrome. But I bring up again my own experiences to justify my personal concerns about relying on a single form of evidence. Now, I hope... 
if the state is convinced that this alleged crime happened, that they have a whole lot more information and evidence backing them up than just the victim's memories. Remember, the detective testified yesterday that the victim's statement changed between what was reported in the Las Vegas Metro Police video and what was reported in Utah. And it leaves a a big question of why is that? Well, this case is long from over, folks. And I want to reiterate that I'm not judging the victim or Jared in this case. Like you, I'm just waiting for authoritative information on the case to be released. Released in a manner that's going to bring out the truth. If this thing happened, justice has to be served. If this crime occurred and it was a crime as a juvenile, then I'm troubled that it's publicly being handled in an adult court where the defendant, in this case Jared Lysick, or anybody else would be sentenced under adult rules. I'm really worried that this might not be the right course of action when you're considering that a companion case was tossed by the Supreme Court. And I'm worried that many of us are just judging and theorizing before the facts are revealed. So what are your thoughts on this one, folks? I really hope you don't choose to unsubscribe from our channel because I've called it like it is. But I support you in choosing whatever channel helps you best follow what you like to follow. You know, I try really hard on Profiling Evil to speak about facts, not theories and not emotion. Now, you'll hear me express theories when I hear facts, but never before. Victims and defendants deserve that from all of us, I think. Now, please, make sure you tune in to Choir Practice on the first Monday of every month. We're going to do it at 8 p.m. Mountain Time. And to get things kicked off, this Monday, we'll be starting with podcaster and attorney Melanie Little. And I've also got Court TV's Vinnie Politan coming on to chat a little bit. So don't miss it. Hey, everybody. Look who I'm hanging out with. And uh, listen, I'm not attending choir practice, but I just wanted to tell you that you need to be watching Profiling Evil YouTube. Don't miss it. I'm telling you, there's something there for you every single time. I never miss. You shouldn't either. And remember, you can find Profiling Evil on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course here on YouTube. And if you like podcasts in the audio format, don't forget to check us out on Profiling Evil Podcasts on your favorite podcast platform. Hey, from all of us at Profiling Evil, as the year winds to a close, thanks so much for your support. We'll see you soon at the next crime scene. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.